1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
0: of a detour. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
2: Something to note about secret societies... All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. For every kernel of truth, there's a swath of misinformation, strategically crafted by each group to protect their true goals and practices.
1: In April of 1966, sophomore student Ron Rosenbaum walked home to his Yale dorm with his friend Mike. It was the middle of the night, after 2 a.m.
2: When they passed the skull and bones tomb, a looming, windowless structure, Mike suddenly stopped. He grabbed Ron's arm and pointed to the front door. Something sat on the doorstep, a white baton in the gloomy darkness.
1: It was a long bone. A femur, probably. Ron, who was already turned off by the Skull and Bones death cult, took a step back and whispered to Mike, come on, let's just go.
2: To his horror, Mike bounded up the tomb steps and scooped up the white bone. Then he stepped even closer to inspect the triple padlock on the front door. Ron felt every hair stand up on the back of his neck. He called out again, Mike don't.
1: Suddenly, the triple padlocks click, click, clicked. The iron door opened, and a hand shot out from the darkness. It wrenched the bone out of Mike's grasp, then disappeared just as quickly. The heavy door slammed shut, and the locks clicked back into place.
2: Still caught in a confusing cocktail of fight or flight, Mike slowly retreated back down the steps. Ron just shook his head, too flustered to speak, too overwhelmed for an I told you so. Neither was quite sure what they'd intruded on, just that it was a secret, one they would never be invited to understand.
1: One that Ron Rosenbaum would spend the rest of his life trying to expose.
2: Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson.
1: And I'm Greg Polsing.
2: And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Black Hand to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them.
1: In our first episode, we'll give you the facts—at least all the facts we can verify—why each group was founded, how they recruited new members, their initiation rituals, and the secret meaning behind their symbols, known only to the loyal.
2: In Part 2, we'll examine some of the alleged actions of each group. We'll try to parse what's real from what's rumor as we explore some of the most popular theories surrounding each secret society.
1: Today, we're taking a deep dive into the Skull and Bone Society, founded at Yale University in 1832. Previous members include titans of industry, business elite, and world political leaders, including three U.S. presidents.
2: With such a distinguished membership list, many believe that the Skull and Bone Society is committed to creating a New World Order through a vast connection of well-placed bonesmen. We'll explore this next week, as well as some of the other theories about their actions, such as their alleged involvement in the creation of the CIA.
1: The Skull and Bones are unique from more conventional secret societies. The rest of these groups, your Illuminatis, your Freemasons, your Triads, are forced to operate in the shadows because of their high-stakes, supposedly world-altering agendas.
2: But the Skull and Bones, on the surface, they're just a group of college kids, basically a fraternity. So where do these accusations of attempted world domination come from?
1: It has more to do with what Bonesmen do after they leave Yale. Bonesmen have infiltrated the financial sector, mass media, higher education, public policy think tanks, business industry, and all three branches of the U.S. government. When you examine the roster of Skull and Bones, you'll find that members come from some of the oldest, wealthiest families in the nation, and go on to fill some of the most prominent public roles of power.
2: As Dr. Anthony C. Sutton, author of America's Secret Establishment, questioned, they swear to take care of each other's interests, and they do it. That in the normal conduct of life is probably okay, but when one of them becomes the president of the United States, it's time to ask questions. What have you sworn to do for your brothers?
1: If the members of the Skull and Bones are trying to implement some kind of vast conspiracy, They're certainly well-placed to do so. They could ostensibly identify an issue in the business sector, devise a piece of public policy legislation, lobby it through the government, then spin their own reporting through the news media. Through the chain of bonesmen, every area could be connected.
2: But is it all just coincidence? Members insist that if Bonesmen are well positioned in the world after graduation, it simply means that they inducted the best candidates Yale had to offer, men who were already destined for greatness.
1: Then why keep everything shrouded in secrecy? Bonesmen won't publicly acknowledge their membership, which is lifelong, and are supposed to leave the room if someone so much as mentions the group. They won't reveal to anyone what goes on in their headquarters, and non-members are strictly forbidden from entering their tomb. And some people believe that their impenetrable iron curtain is a safety measure to protect their true goals from public knowledge.
2: However, that portion of the bones mythos might actually be explained by Yale's own history.
1: Today, there are several secret societies at Yale, though Skull and Bones is the oldest and arguably the most storied. All of these societies emerged out of the school's long history of organized elitism and rigid culture of classism.
2: In 1701, Yale College was the third university established in the United States. It was initially founded as a ministerial school tasked with training ministers for the state of Connecticut, who would then serve as the moral leaders of their communities.
1: At the time, the only other ministerial school in New England was Harvard. But a group of Puritan leaders felt that the education style there was becoming too modern and straying too far from the orthodoxy. So, they founded Yale as a more traditional, conservative institution.
2: Yale men were therefore expected to follow strict guidelines of conduct. They were forbidden from leaving their dorm rooms without proper attire, from speaking to a superior without first being spoken to, from running in the quad, the list goes on and on.
1: The students were also bound by a rigid social hierarchy. As Alexandra Robbins detailed in her book on the Skull and Bones, Secrets of the Tomb, students were ranked by their social cash, not their academic performance. She explained, Students at the top of the class had fathers who held high civil office. At the bottom were sons of farmers, merchants, mariners, and artisans.
2: This ranking determined every aspect of a student's life at Yale, from where they sat in class to where they were housed and what order they were announced at graduation. It was predetermined before a student stepped foot on campus and was nearly impossible to improve. Beyond
1: that, all freshmen were seen as the lowest of the low with the most rules to follow. They couldn't wear hats or carry canes, both status symbols at the time. They couldn't address senior students by any kind of familiar name, only as Sir.
2: This rigid caste system encouraged rampant hazing on campus, referred to as trimming. The upperclassmen believed it was their duty to improve the lowly freshmen and mold them into proper Yale men. Any freshman found in violation of any rule could be trimmed by an upperclassman in any manner that they deemed fit.
1: And the university approved of trimming until the mid-1800s, seeing it as an effective method of enforcing their strict code of conduct. One administrator said that if trimming was abolished, the new freshmen would subject the higher classes to constant scurrility, lessen their manhood and dignity, reduce all to an equal rudeness, and render Yale a mere common school."
2: Of course, as with any hazing practice, this power was often abused. In one story, a freshman was reportedly dragged from his dorm and out into the woods, stripped naked, covered in paint, and forced to have his head shaved.
1: In this culture of fear and systemic oppression, low-ranking students looked for opportunities to distinguish themselves academically, thereby engendering some loyalty, respect and ideally, protection from the upperclassmen. In the late 1700s, students found these opportunities in literary societies.
2: These open groups held weekly meetings. Students gave speeches, recited poems, performed plays, and debated topics of the day.
1: But over time, the campus was overrun by these societies. Nearly every student was a member of at least one. They lost any feeling of specialness. If anyone could join, What was the point?
2: So some of the groups went underground, forming the first secret societies at Yale. By limiting the membership, it gave students a place to establish themselves as even farther above Yale's elite students, the elite of the elite.
1: These secret clubs were undoubtedly inspired by other real secret societies of the era, Groups like the Illuminati and Freemasons were well known in the United States. But as we said earlier, the secret nature of these groups was born out of necessity to their cause.
2: This wasn't the case at all at Yale. Their secrecy was motivated by elitism. Sociologist George Simmel wrote extensively about secret-keeping and secret societies. He found that secrets tap into a primal human need for information. If something is being kept a secret, it subconsciously indicates to us that the information is valuable. Therefore, the secret-keepers are in possession of something worthy of coveting.
1: Yale's secret societies, which were really no more than study groups with a secret handshake, manufactured value by operating in secret. The secret societies quickly overtook all other groups in prestige, simply by closing their doors and shuttering their blinds. Being in on the secret became the new indicator of your social status. But in
2: 1826, public opinion of secret societies in America dramatically turned, with the kidnapping and alleged murder of a man named William Morgan. He threatened to expose the rituals and secrets of the Freemasons in a book after he was denied entry at his local Masonic Lodge. Soon after the announcement, he vanished. The public assumed that members of the Freemasons killed Morgan to keep him quiet.
1: As the story gained traction, Morgan's publisher decided to go ahead with the release of the book, exposing the Mason's secrets. The best-selling book, combined with Morgan's death, sparked a widespread anti-Masonic sentiment. Lodges all over New England were shuttered. In 1828, the Anti-Masonic Party was founded as the first single-issue, third-party political faction in the U.S.
2: By 1832, this outrage trickled down to the collegiate level, The Yale administration singled out the most popular and most exclusive secret society on campus, Phi Beta Kappa.
1: They forced PBK to reveal their membership lists, their ritual practices, and the meanings behind their symbols.
2: Like the unmasking of the great and powerful Oz, when the mystery behind the group was stripped away, so was their prestige— For several years, PBK disappeared entirely from Yale's campus.
1: And in this vacuum, the Skull and Bone Society was born. In short order, it became the most influential organization on
0: campus.
2: Coming up, the origins of the Skull and Bones.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some...
2: Now, back to the story.
1: There are two main tenets of the Skull and Bone Society that draw our continued fascination. The first is the posterity of the group and the undeniable impact its alumni have had on American society.
2: Former members include Henry Luce, co-founder of magazine conglomerate Time, Inc., McGeorge Bundy, National Security Advisor to JFK and LBJ, and William Howard Taft, the 27th President of the United States and 10th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. His
1: father, Alfonso Taft, was in the founding class of Skull and Bones. He served as Ulysses S. Grant's Attorney General and Secretary of War.
2: And even if you don't subscribe to the more conspiratorial view about the impact of bones on the world, you can't deny the impact of bones at home on Yale's campus.
1: Eighty percent of Yale professors from 1865 to 1916 were bonesmen. From 1862 to 1910, every university treasurer but five belonged to Skull and Bones so was every university secretary from 1869 to 1921.
2: The prestige of the society's alumni leads us to the second point of fascination, the secrecy. It begs the question of their intentions and the nature of their strict confidentiality. What grand plans are they keeping from the rest of us? Did they start their club to gain dominance and control of Yale?
1: Then eventually, the fate of humanity.
2: One of the reasons the Skull and Bone Society's true intentions are debated is the fact that there are a few different origin stories for the group. Some people allege that it started as an academic club organized by students who were dissatisfied with the quality of Yale's professors at the time.
1: This theory gives credence to the idea that the Bonesmen wanted to influence the future direction of Yale College. They started the society, agreed on plans for their alma mater, then slowly infiltrated the staff and administration until they held enough power to implement their vision. If this was their mission, they seemed to have succeeded throughout the years.
2: In October of 1873, 40 years after the club's founding, a newspaper called The Iconoclast published its first and only issue, featuring an article specifically calling out the influence of the skull and bones on Yale. The authors claimed that they resorted to founding their own newspaper to publish the article because every other publication was too scared to speak out about the bones.
1: It read, they have obtained control of Yale. Its business is performed by them. Money paid to the college must pass into their hands and be subject to their will. Year by year, the deadly evil is growing. It grasps the college press and endeavors to rule it all. It does not deign to show its credentials, but clutches at power with the silence of conscious guilt.
2: Daniel Coit Gilman was a bonesman in 1852, 20 years into the club's history. He was a staunch advocate for public education, serving as both head librarian at Yale and later as the president of Johns Hopkins University.
1: Allegedly, Gilman was instrumental in the passage of the Morrill Land Grant Act, which allows for the acquisition of public lands for educational purposes. Through the passage of this bill, Yale's campus nearly doubled in size, And the Bonesmen never let the administration forget who they had to thank for that.
2: But another theory connects the rise of skull and bones with the unmasking of another secret society on campus, Phi Beta Kappa. When anti-Masonic sentiment led to the unmasking of a single secret group, one student, William H. Russell, doubled down, recruited 14 friends, and started another even more exclusive and covert club.
1: If this is actually how Skull and Bones started in 1832, then the secrecy feels slightly more justified. First, it was an extension of a pre-existing practice. If Bones was really trying to replace PBK, it makes sense that they would also be a secret society
2: second, because PBK was forcibly unmasked by the Yale administration, it gave the Bonesmen even more reason to conduct their business underground or else they'd face the same fate. Like the Freemasons, the very nature of their actions put them in danger.
1: The Bonesmen were so protective of their group, they wouldn't admit their membership to any non-member, ever. They wouldn't even say the words, skull and bones. If someone else mentioned the club or secret societies in general, it said they were expected to excuse themselves from the conversation and leave the room.
2: Bonesmen also weren't supposed to enter the tomb, their headquarters, within sight of non-members. If there were witnesses present, Alexandra Robbins explained, the society's members refrain from making eye contact with each other and with the spectators, and silently step in a quick single file, 20 paces apart in front of the building.
1: When William H. Russell partnered with Alfonso Taft and first founded the group, they initially called it the Eulogian Club after a fictional patron goddess, Eulogia, the so-called goddess of eloquence. After a year, they adopted the moniker Skull and Bones, but continued the reverence of Eulogia.
2: The name Skull and Bones is supposedly inspired by two German phrases that translate to who was the fool, who the wise man, beggar, or king, and whether poor or rich, all are equal in death.
1: The meaning is, essentially, that death is the great equalizer, and that a man's worth can only be judged by what he does in life.
2: In addition to this somewhat existentialist motto, the group adopted as its symbol a skull and two crossed bones.
1: It all feels sinister, doesn't it? A constant reminder, death is coming.
2: Well, one of the alternate names for the society is the Brotherhood of Death.
1: And it's this combination of intense secrecy and clear obsession with morality that makes people fearful of what this group is all about.
2: Returning to sociologist George Simmel, it's human nature to fill in the blanks when we don't know all the information about someone or something. In our biological need to understand the world and assign meaning to things, we make assumptions in the absence of clear-cut facts. MIT professor Gary T. Marks explained in his analysis of Simmel... When faced with a lack of information about another, an individual may compensate by supplying what is imagined to be true. Incomplete knowledge of others may require some form of confidence.
1: So if all we know about a secret group is that they seem obsessed with death and death iconography, we probably won't make the best assumptions about them.
2: But that's likely how the members of the Skull and Bones want it. As we established earlier, a secret is only as powerful as we perceive it to be.
1: So if what we imagined about Skull and Bones is that they're a death cult hell-bent on world domination, what could be more powerful than that?
2: But this fascination has come at a cost for the Bonesmen. In the 187 years since its founding, they've built up such a powerful mythos around their practices, it's inspired several sets of prying eyes.
1: In 2002, journalist Alexandra Robbins published Secrets of the Tomb, Skull and Bones, The Ivy League, and the Hidden Paths of Power. In it, she reveals several of the skull and bones' most closely guarded secrets.
2: Some of them can be seen as downright silly.
1: Every Bonesman assumes a tomb name, which is never revealed to a non-member. Titles like Magog, Little Devil, and Boaz.
2: Pulitzer Prize winner Archibald McLeish went by gigadibs. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart chose Crapo. Conservative author and founder of the National Review, William F. Buckley, Cheevy.
1: Some were legacy titles passed down from father to son. Allegedly, both Prescott and George H.W. Bush went by bare bones. George W. Bush bucked tradition, but also couldn't decide on a new name, so everyone just called him temporary.
2: Bones men are often said to operate in a different time zone called skull and bones time, five minutes ahead of the rest of the world. 8 p.m. SBT is 7.55 p.m. Barbarian Time.
1: A member explained to Robbins, it was to encourage you to think that being in the building was so different from the outside world that you'd let your guard down.
2: And the grandfather clock in the inner temple where meetings and ceremonies are held is always set to 8 p.m., When the bonesmen meet, they should lose themselves inside the tomb. The concept of time should become irrelevant.
1: The tomb itself is a source of fascination. A two-story structure with only a few small windows, the panes made of dark glass. The heavy steel door is secured with three padlocks that have to be unlocked in the right way, or else an alarm goes off inside.
2: It was built to look like a mausoleum from the outside, and it casts an imposing shadow, speaking to the great secrets contained within. But Robin's sources described it as more like a Victorian pack rat's dorm room, a place that used to be nice, but now looks like both Miss Havisham and Bluto lived in.
1: She wrote dozens of skeletons and skulls, human and animal, dangle from the walls, on which German and Latin phrases have been chiseled. Among moose heads, sconces, medieval armor, antlers, boating flags, manuscripts, statuettes of Demosthenes, and a pair of boots that one member wore throughout his active duty with American forces in France during World War II.
2: But among the junk, specters of death are everywhere. Every plate, cup, and memo is stamped with the skull and crossbones insignia. Actual skeletons are displayed in cases and hung from the ceiling, allegedly including the stolen bones of Madame de Pompadour, the mistress of King Louis XV, as well as the skull of Apache warrior Geronimo. In fact, Geronimo's descendants even filed a lawsuit against the secret society for fear their ancestor's soul wouldn't be able to rest within the tomb.
1: While the bonesman's fixation on death might seem excessively morbid, it's important to remember the major wars that occurred in the first hundred years of the Skull and Bones founding. Many of the early bonesmen fought and died in the Civil War, World War I, and World War II.
2: Therefore, this death obsession and the constant reminders that death is the great equalizer actually makes sense. They'd seen young men perish in their prime all around them. As one engraving in the tomb reads, don't you realize that all good men die?
1: Alexander Robbins is only the latest person to publicly expose the Bonesmen. Journalist Ron Rosenbaum published an article in Esquire in 1977 titled, The Last Secrets of Skull and Bones. He took a far less sympathetic view of the organization.
2: His obsession with the group was first peaked in his sophomore year at Yale. He believes to his core that there's just something not right about the Skull and Bones Society. He believes that their tomb holds dark and violent secrets.
1: He explained that when he was a student. If one could climb to the tower of Weir Hall, the odd castle that overlooks the Bones' courtyard, one could hear strange cries and moans coming from the bowels of the tomb as the 15 newly initiated members were put through what sounded like a harrowing ordeal.
2: One account from 1968 alleges that each initiate is physically beaten Next, he is stripped and made to engage in some form of naked wrestling, followed by a coffin ritual.
1: Along with skeletons, skulls, and crossbones, coffins are an enduring piece of bones mythology. Rosenbaum related another account from 1940. New man placed in coffin, carried into central part of building. New man chanted over, and reborn into society.
2: This tracks with what we know about skull and bones. They take on new names, they live in a new time zone, they leave their former life and are resurrected as bones to live an all-new life.
1: Some accounts allege that initiates are also forced to masturbate in their coffins as part of their rebirth, though this is vehemently denied by bonesmen themselves.
2: Rosenbaum's 1977 article was a bit of a softball, a collection of snippets and gossip, but nothing that earth-shattering. He wrote that he honestly didn't understand what all the fuss was about.
1: It wasn't until after the piece was published that rumors started floating Rosenbaum's way whispers about how the tendrils of the group had wound their way into all three branches of the federal government.
2: A friend warned him that he should withdraw all the money from his bank account because the financial institution was run by bonesmen who would want to retaliate. The friend compared the bonesmen to the mafia.
1: Now that he'd published, Rosenbaum realized there was much, much more to the story. So he continued to research on the side, and in the spring of 2001, nearly 25 years after his initial article, a source approached him about one of the biggest bone secrets of all, their initiation rites.
2: The source allegedly knew of a hidden spot on campus that gave a direct view of the Skull and Bones Tomb Courtyard. He offered Rosenbaum access to observe that year's ceremony.
1: Not only did Rosenbaum watch the initiation ritual, he videotaped the whole thing.
2: Up next, the secrets of the skull and bones are revealed and replayed on the nightly news. (sighs)
0: Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com?
1: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: Now, back to the story.
1: From 1977 to 2001, journalist Ron Rosenbaum chased the lead of the Skull and Bone Society, The group appeared to be a college fraternity on the surface, but was accused of manipulating the government and the economy through backroom deals, built on the relationships formed in the ever impenetrable
2: tomb. On April 14th, 2001, Rosenbaum got a tip about how to watch the Bones initiation ceremony. He would be granted access to witness just what exactly could bind these wealthy and powerful men together in such an unbreakable way.
1: A ceremony that CEOs, presidents, and senators had all supposedly taken part in.
2: After decades of trying to unmask the Bonesmen, he had finally found the exclusive that had evaded him.
1: That night, Rosenbaum perched in a tower on Yale's campus that overlooked the Skull and Bones' tomb courtyard and recorded the ordeal using a night vision camera.
2: He saw before him the source of the wailing moans that so many others had heard before come from the Skull and Bones initiates. One of
1: the Bones' men wore a suit and a plastic George W. Bush mask fake bush bellowed i'm gonna ream you like i reamed al gore
2: another commanded lick my bumhole, neophyte
1: rosenbaum described the finale of the ceremony writing they were forced face to face with a shocking tableau a guy holding what seemed like a butcher knife wearing a kind of animal skin barbarian look stood over what seemed to be a woman covered in fake blood and not much else The neophyte then approached a skull a few feet away from the knife wielder and victim tableau. The neophyte knelt and kissed the skull, at which point the guy with the knife knelt and pretended to cut the throat of the prone figure.
2: When Rosenbaum's expose broke, it was a bombshell, retold in news outlets everywhere. They showed clips from the tape as Rosenbaum filled in the gaps with a play-by-play.
1: The story seemed to confirm what many had suspected about Skull and Bones for decades. It was a juvenile boys club, reveling in nothing more than childish, vulgar Ooga Booga games.
2: Rosenbaum pulled back the curtain on the great and powerful Bones and revealed what appeared to be nothing more than a little man playing at greatness. Anyone who had been previously rejected by Skull and Bones could now rejoice. There was nothing to be coveted in this experience.
1: Rosenbaum triumphantly declared, I am the Ahab of Skull and Bones, pursuing the white whale, or white male, Leviathan to the utmost depths.
2: Except there might be more to the story. In her book, Secrets of the Tomb, Alexandra Robbins thinks that the ceremony Rosenbaum witnessed was actually an elaborate hoax. Either the Bonesman in the courtyard knew that he would be watching, and therefore put on a show, or perhaps even arranged for the secret viewing in the first place.
1: Rosenbaum disputed this criticism and denies that he was pranked. But there are a few points to consider in Robin's favor. First, the Skull and Bones tomb is literally an impenetrable fortress. Why would they perform such a secret ceremony outside in the courtyard when they're guaranteed privacy simply by remaining indoors?
2: More importantly, we have to consider what the point of an initiation ceremony is, to engender loyalty and belonging. A brutal hazing ritual without any context could have the opposite effect, Abusing new members gives them no incentive to keep the club's secrets. Therefore, it seems likely that what Rosenbaum witnessed
1: was a hoax. Instead, Robbins detailed an entirely different initiation ritual in her book, one that draws new members in with mysticism, absurdity, and a promise of absolute secrecy without any violence. Her account is based on society documents she's collected and researched for her book and statements made to her by former Bonesmen.
2: First, you're led to the door of the Skull and Bones tomb. The front door cracks open and a bag or hood is placed over your head as you're whisked inside.
1: You're blind in total darkness as a Skull and Bones member escorts you to the first room. There, someone whips the bag off your head, but it's pitch black. The only light comes from the smoldering ends of several cigarettes that each member languidly waves through the air.
2: One of the members tells you what's about to happen. You're about to die and be reborn.
1: Before you can really process the words, your head is once again covered by the bag, and you're once again plunged in darkness.
2: A guide leads you on a blind tour around the tomb, taking you room by room, upstairs and downstairs, whispering pieces of lore and half-truths along the way.
1: They place your hand on something hard, a piece of wood, and cackle. Feel that? That's the coffin we're going to bury you in.
2: The tour is a whirlwind until you're completely dizzy and lost in the darkness. Then suddenly, Your escort stops. He's brought you to the door of the inner temple. Four other members, the Shakers, flank you, two on either side, though you still can't see anything through the bag on your head.
1: On the other side of the door, someone asks your name. Before you can reply, the Shakers shout it for you. Then the door to the inner temple flies open. The hood is removed, and the Shakers shove you inside. You see dozens of masked and robed bonesmen. They're cheering and hollering at the
2: top of their lungs. The shakers grab your arms and carry you forward to a table in the middle of the room. They press you toward the tabletop where an oath of secrecy is written on a card. The room chants, read, read, read.
1: Before you can even finish the first sentence, the shakers grab you again and thrust you to another part of the room forcing you to kneel in front of a carved bust of Eulogia the room chants Eulogia Eulogia Eulogia
2: then back to the oath on the table read read read
1: then to another corner of the room where the shakers make you kneel in front of a portrait of a beautiful woman they bellow canubial bliss canubial bliss canubial bliss
2: The Shakers next rush you before the most ornately robed member in the room, known as Uncle Toby. The entire room falls silent in reverence. Uncle Toby intones, Uncle Toby, Philema G., Carnix, Carnikesi, Carnixo, McPherson, O'Fanel.
1: The room commands, say it, say it, say it.
2: Another moment of complete silence as you try to form words before you're overruled, the room cries out, he can't, he can't, he can't.
1: Then they haul you back to the table. For the first time, you realize that sitting next to the oath card is a skull filled with red liquid. The room commands, drink it, drink it, drink it.
2: You hold your nose and drain the skull, which thankfully is filled with red Kool-Aid and not blood. As soon as you swallow, the shakers bring you to kneel before a man dressed as Don Quixote wielding a broadsword. He raises it up in the air as if he might chop off your head there on the spot.
1: The crowd falls silent, waiting for the blade to drop, waiting for you to die.
2: But Don Quixote ceremoniously taps you on the left shoulder and declares, by order of our order, I dub thee Knight of Eulogia.
1: The bell chimes, three rings, then two, then two more, signifying the sacred number of the order, 322, the birth year of the goddess Eulogia. The entire room shouts, bones.
2: For a moment, you're allowed to catch your breath before the shakers scoop you back up again and thrust you back outside the doors of the inner temple, slamming them shut behind them. You're now a member of the Skull and Bones Society.
1: One bonesman described the initiation rite as something out of a Harry Potter novel. He explained, you're dizzy and unsure, but it is never dangerous.
2: Once each of the 15 new initiates have been sworn in in the Inner Temple, the entire group reassembles with the rest of the members present. In addition to the outgoing senior class, several alumni, called Patriarchs, will also attend to share their own stories of Bones lore and welcome the new class. Each class tries to enlist the most prestigious alumni they can. George H.W. Bush was apparently a frequent guest before he was elected president.
1: New initiates get another tour of the tomb, this time without a blindfold, and are treated to a party that lasts long into the night.
2: If Robin's account is accurate, it's certainly tamer than naked wrestling and ejaculating in coffins. It's a wholly unique shared experience that ultimately binds members together, which, at the end of the day, is the true point of the secret society, connection.
1: By the end of their senior year, each class of Bonesmen is entirely galvanized. They form lifelong friendships based on shared experiences that they likely won't find in any other place.
2: After graduation, each member is provided access to the network of bonesmen who came before him. With alumni in all manner of business, government, and media conglomerates, it's a powerful tool to get your foot in the door at your first job.
1: But it's that same vast network that spawns a dark aura around the Skull and Bone Society. When you take a closer look at the membership roster, you realize just the kind of pedigree and reach the organization has.
2: When one Bonesman calls on another for a favor, it could be to broker a billion dollar deal. It could be to lobby a bill to fellow congressmen. It could be to endorse a presidential candidate.
1: Percy Rockefeller, Standard Oil Company, Bonesman. Russell Wheel Davenport, Fortune Magazine, Bonesman. Pierre J, Chairman of the New York Federal Reserve, Bonesmen:
2: William Howard Taft, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Presidents of the United States, Bonesmen.
1: With so many men connected by such deeply ingrained loyalties, it begs the question, what comes first? God, country, or bones?
2: Dr. Anthony C. Sutton, author of America's Secret Establishment, said... I don't know any member of Skull and Bones who's made any great contribution to literature, to art, to sociology, to anything we might do to help the world progress and be happier. They exist for war and destruction and greed and personal acquisition and finance. They don't exist to better the lot of their fellow man. They exist to better the lot of their own group.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with part two of the Skull and Bones Society. We'll take a closer look at how deep this vast network of power goes and follow the reported connection between the Skull and Bones and the Nazi party, as well as the allegations that the Secret Society is actually a front for a purebred eugenics project.
2: For more information on the skull and bones, amongst the many sources we used, we found Alexandra Robbins' book, The Secrets of the Tomb, extremely helpful to our research.
1: You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify.
2: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar.
2: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joel Stein. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Abigail Cannon with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Greg Paulson and Vanessa Richardson.